Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. For those of you who are with us live, in person, and joining together, and those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad that you're able to join us today as we continue in this series that we launched last week called A Roar to Restore. We're looking at uh, the book of Amos. Before we jump into that, I want to make a very important announcement for the life of our church. Um, As our elders have been meeting and seeking to love all of our people well, we have a number of folks in the life of our church who still do not feel comfortable coming to a worship in-person gathering with people who may or may not wear masks. So as we met together, we put out a survey, and we wanted to see how many people would be interested in a mask-only service. And from that survey, we have about 100 people who said that they would participate consistently in a service for those who want to wear masks. Some of you may fall into that category. So what we're going to do next Sunday at 11 a.m., we are holding a mask-only venue in the Crosspoint Center. For those of you at home and you're still watching and you're not yet comfortable coming, we want to invite you to come at 11 o'clock next Sunday to the Crosspoint Center. We'll have a pastor there. We'll have a, a team of folks who are going to greet you. We're going to seat you together. It will be a video venue, but we want to invite you to come and let's regather together for that purpose. Also, at 9.30 beginning next week, because we have so many parents who are wanting to come back and bring their children to the services, and yet they're not able to fit within the the, the prescribed number that we have for this building, we're having to roll over into the Cross Point Center at 9.30 there. And so for those of you who may not have been able to sign up today, next week you can choose between Worship Center and the Cross Point Center at 9.30, and we're going to open that up as a video venue as well. And we're doing these things in an incremental way. We're seeking to bring the body of Christ back together. We began with our worship services on June the 7th. We have added our nursery and preschool. Today we've added our our children. We have already added our student ministry and they're averaging at about 162 on Wednesday nights. And what our goal is to incrementally bring all of our people back together so that we can once again gather together without the fear of any kind of virus, but absolutely in the total praise of worshiping our Savior. Amen. And we're looking forward to those days. So just pay attention to our websites where you can come on and continue to join us as we continue to regather together as the people of God. Several years ago, I say several years ago, it was many, many, many years ago, I was a, when I was a freshman in high school, we moved from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Denham Springs, Louisiana, the weekend before my freshman year in a new high school began. I knew nobody except my older brother, no friends, and it was a really strange thing moving from Baton Rouge into Denham Springs. I thought all the folks there were really redneck and uh, totally different, but I didn't quite fit in. But I had a class that really made a difference for me. Of all classes that I could have had that would have connected me to other people, it was called American Civics class. Now, you would not think that that's a very exciting class, Um, but it was something about that class. Mr. Howard was the teacher, and in that class, he only allowed boys in the class, which I believe was a huge mistake, but he brought all these boys, and there were no girls, just guys, so we cut up, and I made a lot of friends in that class. 
But when I took that class, there was something that Mr. Howard taught me. There was a statement, there was a line that has stayed with me for over 40 years. And even to this day, 47 years later, I still remember that exact line. It's made such an impact in my life. Here's how it goes. I must make an honest effort to improve my overall conduct in my fourth hour American civics class. I should know it well because I wrote enough of those things. And it was a, it, it was a mess in that class because all these guys would cut up all the time. But Mr. Howard walked in one day and he says, I'm going to have a contest of all of you boys in the class. And whoever wins this contest gets to be exempt from the midterm. And I thought, man, I love to be a part of something like that. And he says, here's what we're going to do. Fire Prevention Week is coming up, and we're going to make posters. And every one of you who wants to be exempt can put a, make a poster, and whoever wins the vote of the students for the best poster gets exempt from the midterm. I said, man, I am all about that. I want to do this. I hate tests, but I love drawing. So I went right to work, and I drew this poster out. Those of you who remember what poster boards used to look like, I started drawing everything that you would see in a forest, into animals, every kind of animal imaginable I drew on there. But I didn't just color them with crayons or markers. I painted them. Every single one of them was a masterpiece. And as I painted this poster with every imaginable animal, I put a very clever heading at the top. I was I wasn't trying to be um, maybe sarcastic or funny or anything. I thought it was just clever. Here's what I wrote on the top. If this forest caught on fire, these animals would be crispy critters. I just thought, that's very clever. So the day of the contest came, all the boys were standing up in the front, and we got to reveal our posters. And I revealed mine, and the class just erupted in laughter. And Mr. Howard didn't like it. He thought, you're just being sarcastic. You're just demeaning this process. And I really wasn't. He even pointed to the young man. He said, I think this boy should win the poster. And he should be exempt. And he went through his whole spiel of why. And when they voted, they voted for me. And I was exempt from the midterm in American civics class. And, and I thought it was only right because I was making an honest effort to improve my overall conduct in my fourth hour American civics class. We live in a culture where people always want to be exempt, don't we? I mean, look, we are always looking for tax exemptions. Entire books are written about this, how you can be exempt from this and this. And if we hire the right kind of bookkeepers and accountants, they can help us be exempt to pay taxes. We see the same thing with legal experts and helping us to, to use loopholes to not be held accountable to certain aspects of the law. We see this with professional golfers. They want to win tournaments so they can be exempt from qualifying events so they don't have to go through all of that. And we live in a culture where people are constantly wanting to be exempt. I want to be exempt from right actions. I want to be exempt from moral choices. I want to be exempt from righteous judgment. But the reality is this. As a human being, whether you have lived or you're alive or you shall be alive in the future, not one person is ever exempt from standing before the righteous King of Kings one day where every one of us will give an account for the things that we've done either with Christ or without Christ. Not one human being is exempt from standing before their God in eternity. And neither are the nations exempt. 
No nation is exempt from the righteous judgment of God. And that righteous judgment upon nations is something that God enacts and manifests, not just in eternity, but even now. And as we look at the book of Amos, last week we began by looking at the man. We saw that he was a very simple farmer. He was a man from an obscure place, but God used him in a mighty way. We looked at his mission. He was go to the people of Israel. He was from the southern uh, um, uh, Judah, and he was to go to Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and to preach against their sinful lifestyles. And the message was a message of restoration. The entire book is about God's desire to restore his people, that they would return to him, that they would seek him and live. And that's the message of the book of Amos. And as we dig in today, we begin in chapter 1, verse 3, and we're going to look at all of the nations that Amos is going to be preaching the word of God against. And he is standing in Israel. He is in Bethel, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom. And as he goes and he preaches, the people who are hearing his initial sermon are excited about what they get to hear. So open your Bibles to Amos chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Now before we jump into it, there is a pattern that we have to see that he gives for every single sermon about every single nation in that area. And he begins the pattern the same way. He always begins saying this, thus says the Lord. Amos knew that it wasn't going to be about his words, it's going to be the word of God. And over 40 times in this book, he says, thus says the Lord. But the second part of that, that, that pattern that he uses as he addresses every nation, he uses this interesting phrase. He says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, what does he mean by that? Is three transgressions and four. Are these people judged because they only have three or four sins? That's not all what it means. If you take this Hebrew phrase, this idiom, and you apply it to how we use it in our culture today, it would sound like this. For sin after sin after sin after sin. For a constant barrage and a habitual rebellion towards a holy God and his word, you will not escape the judgment and the righteous hand of God. Even in this statement, it demonstrates the grace of God. That God is patient even after sin after sin after sin after sin. There's going to come a day when his grace runs out. And what he says to each of these nations is amazing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in verse 3 of chapter 1, go all the way to verse chapter 2, and we're going to cover eight specific nations and what God charges against them. Okay, so let's begin. The first one is Syria and Damascus. Now, let me give you a map so we can help understand this. Here's Judah, the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom of Israel is just above it. But Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, is to the north of Israel. And so Amos is preaching in Bethel, which is the capital of Israel, and he speaks first against those in Damascus of Syria. They had long been enemies of Israel. 
And so what does God say through Amos about Damascus? Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Now you and I read that and we say, what in the world does that even mean? It means that they went and they attacked the people of Israel in Gilead, which belonged to Israel. And they used what was called threshing sledge. This was a device made out of wood and metal. And on the bottom of it had very, very sharp spikes. And the purpose of it is they would connect this, this, this apparatus to two horses. And they would drag it through a wheat field and it would thresh the wheat. But here's what the people in Damascus did. When they conquered a people, they would take their prisoners. They would stake them to the ground and then they would run these threshing machines over them and literally rip them to pieces. And what was their sin? Here's their sin. Blatant brutality on humanity. And when the people of Israel heard this, they must have been thinking, yeah, Amos, you get them. We remember when those people tore our, our people apart. They need the righteous judgment of God. They must have been applauding as Amos was speaking of the judgment of Damascus. But then he goes on. He goes to the next country. He speaks next of Gaza, which is Philistia or the Philistines. Now you notice he's going in a counterclockwise motion. And so he moves from Damascus up north to the southwest portion of Israel and he goes to Gaza. What does he say to Gaza? This is what Amos says about Gaza from God's word. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. The Philistines were all about capturing people and selling them on the marketplace. Men, women, Boys, girls, old men, old women, middle-aged men and women, married couples, singles, little boys and little girls. And what they did was they would take an entire people group, split up the families, and sell them to the Edomites or anybody else who would buy them. They were used for slave trade. They were used for sex trade. They were used for every imaginable thing that you can think about where they treat them as objects. And God says to them, here is your sin, the wholesale of human trafficking. And the people of Israel must have thought, go ahead, Amos, you're right. Those people are horrible and they deserve the judgment of God. I like this guy. Don't you like this guy? Man, he's spot on. They were excited. Then he goes to the third group. He moves up a little bit back north. He goes from Philistia to Phoenicia and he speaks of Tyre. Now he's preaching against Tyre, and the people are hearing him, what he has to say, and they're wondering, okay, what does God have to say about those people up there? And here's what God says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. What is that? The people of Tyre had a previous king named Hiram, he was the king of Tyre. And in the days of Solomon, they had a covenant together. They had an understanding that they would not mistreat each other and they would never sell one another into slavery. 
They were agreed that they would walk with each other in a friendship of brotherhood. And what was their sin? Here's their sin. They did not keep their promise. They didn't keep their promise. They broke their promise, and instead of protecting the people of Israel, they sold them to the Edomites. They too got into the human trafficking aspect, but the worst thing was they broke their covenant relationship with someone else. And the Israelites must have been happy about that. They must have been saying, that's right, that's right. We remember when they did that. My great-grandfather, he was sold into slavery. That's right, I like this guy. You know, he could get his own cable show if he keeps this up. I mean, they were excited about it. Then he goes to the fourth. He starts moving back down. He goes from Damascus to Phoenicia to Philistia. Then he comes to Edom. And he brings a judgment on Edom. And that judgment is really, really interesting because Edom and Israel were very close and were very close at one time. But here's what God says through Amos, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. You see, these two were at odds with one another and where they were once friends. And rather than becoming and maintaining friends, for some reason, Edom developed this hatred and this jealousy toward Israel, so much so that their sin was an unmitigated hatred for different people groups. They hated them, couldn't stand them, and they despised Israel. They carried with them this, this hidden anger that they could not control. And every time they saw them, when they spoke about them, it was passed from generation to generation to generation that the generations no longer even knew why we didn't like them. But they are just simply to be despised. Then he goes on. Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia, Edom. Then he jumps all the way up here to Ammon. He doesn't go right to Moab, he goes to Ammon. And he says to Ammon, the judgment that awaits them. This is the most gruesome of all. And here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. You know what they did? It was population control. The Ammonites would go to a place and they would kill as many children as they possibly could for profit. And they would slaughter these children so that they can enlarge their borders and their territory. And they cared nothing about the women or the children or the cultures that were at hand. Absolutely disgusting. What is their sin? Infanticide for a profit. The Israelites must have been thinking, wow, yes, finally, God is coming to do something about these pagan nations, and he's about to bring down the judgment of Almighty God. They must have been in a frenzy. But he's got one more, and he brings up Moab. He drops back down Moab. Now, Moab for some time, was at odds with, the, with Edom. 
The two of them were at odds with one another. And on one situation, what happened was um, Israel and Judah and Moab were all together, I'm sorry, Edom were all together fighting against Moab. And so those three nations, Israel, Judah, and Edom, coming against Moab, the king of Moab was cornered. He knew that he could not get away. So what did he do? He had already captured the king, the king's son of Edom, the king apparent. And he put him on the wall, and he burned him alive so everybody could see. And then what happened was, Edom comes in. He gets the bones of his son, and he buries them. But Moab finds the grave and desecrates the tomb. Some people say, well, this passage here has to do with um, you should not practice cremation. That's not all what it's talking about. But here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, for the transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Why did he do it? Here's why he did it. Vengeance. He had a vengeful spirit. He was going to get even with the king. And even though he knew it would cost him his own life, he was going to go to the grave with a fight and desecrate all the people that he can. Now, the people of Israel must have been happy. Yes, all of the nations around us have been judged by God. And they must have been pointing the fingers and remembering all the atrocities. And you know, when I think about this this week, I was thinking, wow, 750 B.C. would have been a terrible time to live. Amen? I mean, you look at the brutality. You look at the atrocities of what happened 2,770 years ago, and we can look at them and say, oh, they're not like us today. I mean, we're enlightened. We've evolved. Hey, we've been woke, right? I'm glad that that kind of stuff doesn't happen today. I wonder what Amos would say if he came to America and he looked at the landscape of our country. I wonder what God would say to tell Amos to tell us. I wonder what he would say about our brutality on humanity among the most vulnerable. What would he say to us about ripping Babies apart and selling their parts for profit so that we can have abortion factories throughout the world. I wonder what he'd say about population control, all for the purpose of the advancement of certain people. I wonder what he would say about human trafficking in our own culture. I wonder what Amos would say about, you know, the, the, the sale of, of men to cheap labor so companies can make a great profit. I wonder what he would say about the sex trafficking in our own country. I wonder what he'd say about pornography. I wonder what he'd say about child pornography. I wonder what he would say to Netflix. For a super hyper-sexualized movie of 11-year-old girls, which is nothing but child pornography. I wonder what he would say to people who subscribe to Netflix and it never bothers them. I wonder what he would say about the unmitigated hatred for one another because of the color of our skin. I wonder what he would say about the unmitigated hatred towards one another because of the color of our parties. 
I wonder what it would say to the unmitigated hatred towards one another because of the color of our uniforms. I wonder what he'd say about uncontrolled and unchecked anger in our country. I don't know, I'm just wondering. I wonder what he would say about promises by politicians that have never been kept. I wonder what he'd say about promises by politicians that should never have been made. I just wonder. I wonder what he has to say about vengeful spirits that want to take everything into our own hands. And because of those that have hurt us in the past, everybody owes us. And because of how I'm treated in the future, I have the right to do what I please. You see, as he looks over the landscape, I just wonder. And here's the thing that I've come to realize. We don't have to look far and deep to see those atrocities among us and be careful be careful because we could be like the people of Israel and Judah we could stand and applaud and say that's right God you get them we could point our fingers at all the atrocities that are happening around our own communities in our own country and we miss what God is saying to us do you know what God is doing here let me show you God is making a dartboard. He's hitting all those countries around Judah and Israel. And as they're standing and applauding, these people who were the apple of God's eye are about to be the bullseye. Remember when I said nobody, nobody escapes the judgment of God? He is about to speak to the people of God. And what does he say? Here's what he says to Judah. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four. You hear that? He's using the same pattern of judgment that he used on the most pagan nations to his own people. Making no exemptions, no exceptions. He says, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but, they have lied, but, but their lies have led them astray after which their fathers have walked. Here's their sin. Their sin is they've rejected God's word. Now, let's put this in perspective. A lot of people will say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, they rejected the word of God, but man, they haven't killed anybody. They haven't sold anybody into slavery. They're not breaking promises. It doesn't seem that rejecting God's word should be on the same level of all of the other atrocities. But here's the thing. People who possess God's word are the people who are to submit to God's word. And I want to tell you the worst thing is when you reject the word of God, culture will become as depraved as it can. You reject peace, and there'll be no peace. You reject truth, and there'll be no truth. You reject righteousness, and there'll be no righteousness. You reject trust, justice, and there'll be no justice. You reject generosity, and there will be no generosity. You see, the problem is this. When we reject the truth of the word of God, we have no absolute standard by which to live by. And everybody's standard becomes their own truth. 
And we're living in a culture today where we have seen so many churches in America walk away from the absolute truth of God's word. And the standard is no longer significant. You see, the greatest thing we can do is reject the word of God. And when we do that, all of culture follows that pattern. All of it. Then he speaks to Israel. Remember, here's Amos in Bethel. And now he's getting ready to preach to Israel. They're probably pretty happy right now. God even judged Judah. That's right. Our brothers from the south, they're just ignorant. Look what they've done. And then he turns to Israel. And here's what he says. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust and the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. He goes on. And a man and his father go into the same girl so that they, my, my name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, here's the thing. There are three specific sins. All the other nations, one. When he gets to Israel, there are three. And all the rest of the book, you will see these manifested. What are those three? Number one, injustice towards poor and afflicted. They knew better. God has always had a heart for the, for the brokenhearted. God has always had a heart for those who have been afflicted. And yet they knew better. And rather than, than taking care of the people around them, all they cared about were their extra houses and all of their luxury and all of their conveniences. And they walked right by the hurting people every single day. And it grieves the heart of God. But here's the second thing they did. Moral impurity and infidelity. When it talks about a man and his son going into the same woman, it's talking about temple prostitution. And what they did were they were unfaithful not only to their own wives, but they were unfaithful to God. That's why in Amos chapter 5, verse 21, God says, I hate, I despise your feast and your solemn assemblies. Your music is noise. Take it off of me. Because while they were pretending to be righteous and holy, their lives were filled with immorality and infidelity towards God. Here's the third thing. A pursuit of material possessions. All through this book, you will find the pursuit of comfort and luxury and ease why the culture is broken and suffering and hurting. At that point, the people of Israel didn't think so highly of Amos anymore. In fact, they run him out of town. We see in chapter 7. They try to cancel him because he doesn't carry the narrative that they believe about themselves. But God says, you will not escape this judgment, my people. So, what do we take from this? Let me give you God's roar to restore when it comes to this for ourselves. I want to give you three things, three simple things in closing that we cannot forget. These are so incredible because they come from the heart of God. Number one, 
God genuinely cares about broken, marginalized, and oppressed people. He cares. He genuinely cares about the people in our culture who are hurting, who are crushed, who find themselves enslaved in all kinds of ways. All through the pages of the Old Testament, we find this to be true. When God speaks of the people of Israel, he sets up all these parameters of taking care of those people who are the most hurt among us. The Lord Jesus, as he begins his ministry, he quotes Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's what Jesus came for. And if Jesus has a heart for the broken and the, those who are underprivileged and those who are treated with injustice, then what should the body of Christ have? We should have a passion for people who are broken and hurting. Not like the people of Israel who are so consumed with their buildings and their luxury and their comfort. And they walk past people. You know, I was thinking this week, I was thinking if you took all the number of churches in America and you took their net worth with all of their buildings and their technology and the amount that we spend for our own comfort in worship and yet walk past the most broken in our communities. What does the Father think of that? We're to love those people because the Lord Jesus loves them. The greatest expression was his own brokenness for us. When he went to the cross on our behalf and he took our sins, he was the one who was treated with injustice. He was the one who was oppressed. He was the one who died so that those of us who were broken could be made whole. And those of us who have been broken or made whole are to love others with the same kind of passion. Isn't it amazing? If you're here today and if you're watching online and you're broken, maybe you find yourself in some kind of a prison. I want you to know something. The Lord Jesus loves you. He cares about you. And he sees you right where you are. And his desire is that you would come to know him as your savior and your deliverer for his glory for you good. Here's the second thing I'd say. God extends his grace through repentance. Oh, we forget this. Grace is unmerited favor. But when you and I recognize our sin and our need for a savior and we repent of our own broken and fallenness, then the grace of God abounds in our lives. It's interesting that the, one of the contemporaries of Amos was Jonah. And you know where Jonah went? He went to Nineveh. He was very reluctant. He took a three-day detour in a cruise ship in the belly of a fish. But he eventually got there. And when he got there, he preached to the Ninevites during this same time period. Repent. And what did they do? They all repented. And rather than the judgment of God, they experienced the grace of God. When you look around the landscape of America, we see that there needs to be repentance 
because we're not any different than those countries 2,770 years ago, are we? And God is calling us to repent. You see, there may be some of you that you've heard the message of Christ over and over and over and over again, and God is speaking to you today. It's time for you to repent, to turn around and turn to me and to trust what my son has done on the cross for your salvation and come to me. Peter, in preaching in Acts, says this, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. See, some of you are running and running and running, and God is calling you to turn around because his son is your only hope. Let me tell you, the only hope for America is not a political party. The only hope for America is not a system. The only hope for America is Jesus. Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. Here's the third thing. God's people must walk in humility. We must walk in humility. Now I'm going to talk about us. There's always a danger when people read this and see these nations being judged, and they like to assume that America is the people of God. Nope. If you look at America's landscape today, we are one of those pagan nations on the outside. The body of Christ. We are the people of God. And yet we are called to walk with humility. We can't be like the Israelites who are celebrating the judgment of all the nations around us. And what do we do many times as a church? We love to point our fingers at everybody, everybody. And all along, God is not only throwing the darts at those around us, But he is firing his darts in our own hearts and pinpointing our own sin and our own brokenness. And rather than celebrating what may come to those around us, we need to look inside of what God is charging us in. We're to walk in humility and not in arrogance. Micah 6.8 reminds us of this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? We're to walk in humility. And if we're to love justice, let me tell you, the church needs to be the ones out there on the front lines fighting for the justice of the oppressed. We need to be the ones fighting for the most vulnerable among us as we can help protect their lives. We need to be the ones out there modeling the grace of an incredible loving Father who has sent to us His Son that we can be redeemed and have a relationship with Him so that we can tell others about His love for them. We're to walk in humility in all that we do. Even in the midst of the most hostile moments of our culture, we love to quote 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14, and we should because it's a wonderful passage. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Who's he begin with here? My people. We always want revival in America. But revival never comes apart from the restoration of God's people to Him. 
It begins with us. If my people would humble themselves, if my people would recognize their own fallenness and their own shortness in my will, and if they come and let me restore them to where I desire them to be, then there will be healing in the land. Revival begins right here. Now, I do think that we ought to pray for our country, and I think that there's a couple of things. Number one, we confess our sins individually. Individually. I just wonder today, what darts, what darts has God thrown at your heart today? And while you're pointing your finger at the culture around you, and God has hit your heart as the bullseye, what has he pointed out to you today? Confess that. It begins right here. What is God saying to our body? We may have corporate sins that we need to confess, pride, self-righteousness. What are the sins of the nation? National sins that we confess to him and we ask him to have mercy. You see, the thing is this. No one is exempt from the righteous judgment of a loving God. No one. But everyone can walk in his grace as we repent, as we confess, and as we run to him. Yes, our nation is in trouble. But we began singing a song that Jesus forever reigns and he is forever in charge. Let's run to him. Join me as we pray. Father, we ask this day that you speak to our own hearts. And Father, rather than us walking out of here with self-righteousness, Father, we walk out of here with humility. We know the condition of our nation. We know what's happening around us even as we speak. But Father, you hold us responsible as your people to act like your people and to walk in humility and kindness. Father, I pray for those who do not know you that one day they will stand before you. And today, every person who has heard this message knows that to be a reality. And the only thing that matters as they stand before you will be what they do with Jesus Christ. No one is neutral. No one is exempt. And I pray, Father, that you would use this message to challenge their own thinking and bringing them to a realization that they need Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.